number 87. Very few saints, the Master once told me, have attained final liberation. I exclaimed in dismay, what about all those saints in the autobiography? Are all of them dead and gone with no one to take their place? In Autobiography of a Yogi, Paramahansa Yogananda makes it clear that final liberation is usually attained from higher astral worlds, not from the material plane. It seemed to me at the time, however, that that goal must be virtually impossible of attainment. Very few even of those saints, he replied, were fully liberated. I named a few of them specifically from his book. In each case, his reply was no. At last, he said, only Babaji, Lahiri Mahashaya, Sri Yukteswarji, and two of Lahiri Mahashaya's disciples, Swami Pranabhananda, the saint with two bodies, as he described in the autobiography, and Ram Gopal Muzumdar, the sleepless saint. On the occasion I quote here, he didn't name himself. At other times, however, he told us he had come into his body fully liberated. I also met another fully liberated soul, he told me. His name was Yogi Ram- Ramiya. He was a disciple of the great master Ramana Maharshi. It does happen occasionally that a disciple becomes more highly advanced than his guru. Yogi Ramya, when I myself met him in 1960, was known by the name Yogi Rami, Sri Rama Yogi. He is mentioned again later in this book. Why can't a master simply dissolve all his karma, I asked, the moment he realizes his oneness with God? You have to realize when he's talking about fully liberated, he doesn't mean not fully self-realized, because that's where Swami asked the question. Why can't a master simply dissolve all of his karma the moment he realizes his oneness with God? Well, in that state, you don't really care. You see all this as a dream. You may even go on for incarnations, for incarnations that way, returning to earth to help free your disciples. Masters at that level of development may even keep a little bit of karma deliberately as a means of holding them down to this plane for that higher purpose for a while. For that higher purpose for a while. Once you've attained the highest state, Nirbhakalpa Samadhi, there is no ego consciousness left. You are essentially free anyway. What is it, Master, I ask, that draws a soul back to earth after he has attained final liberation? He replied, he still keeps the desireless desire to help others. In his correspondence course lessons, he explains the difference between the rebirth of a fully liberated soul and that of a master who has a little karma of his own remaining to be worked out. The latter, after he attains full liberation, becomes an ascended master. If, as rarely happens, he returns to earth, it is as a full manifestation of God, an avatar, with divine power to shower blessings generally on all mankind. Those who still have some past karma of their own to work out return primarily to help their own disciples. These saints, called jivan muktas, freed while living, are able to uplift a few but cannot carry innumerable disciples to God. Those, on the other hand, who return without any karma of their own, having become paramukta, fully liberated in a former life, come as avatars. Whoever comes to them for help can be saved, though his salvation is not necessarily immediate. I asked the master once, are you an avatar? It would take such a one, he replied quietly, to bring a mission of this importance. 
When his mother took him while he was a baby to be blessed by his guru's guru, Lahiri Mahashaya, yoga avatar or incarnation of yoga, as Paramahansa Yogananda called him, that great master said to her, Little mother, thy son will be a yogi. As a spiritual engine, he will carry many souls to God's kingdom. Those words could not have been spoken of a lesser master. They could only have been spoken of an avatar. Well, there we are. Hmm. Makes you think a bit, doesn't it? <laughs> it's, you know, it's... Um, just a moment. There was a time, and I was sort of remembering, when all of that seemed all really important, um, when people were trying to sort of sort out It always became important, it became important in the context of Ananda when people were were trying to sort whether they had to listen to Swami Kriyananda or not. Because there was that phrase, if you're not fully liberated, then then the implication was that you were still subject to egoic error. Which is, it's sort of, he puts a slightly different cast on it here. The Jivan Mukta has the remaining karma that he just lets it run so it will give him a reason to come back. Ananda Ma undoubtedly falls into that category. If Ramana Maharshi was not fully liberated, then he would probably fall into that category of souls that... But, but Master emphasizes that the realization is there. And this is when we were... Remember when we were doing the Patanjali series, how once we got to Samadhi, there were just so many more pages in the book <laughs> when we thought it was over because there was just all of these other things that begin at that point that you begin to work through. Swami, in his Gita commentary, talks, you know, he gives instructions for how you can dissolve all the rest. Once you you have realized, how does he put it here? He says, um, how did he say it? You don't really care. You see all this as a dream. So it's like you can sort of see that you were all those different things in different lifetimes, but it doesn't matter to you anymore. But there's, there's some more subtle state of dissolving all of that. And Swami gives instructions in the Gita for how, you know, in one, in one meditation, you can just sort of visualize those lifetimes and just dissolve whatever remains. What must be remaining, I mean, I'm really guessing here, but um, those desires that, that haven't been fulfilled, that are just sort of the energies unresolved, and even though it doesn't hold you anymore because you, you have no egoic identification with it, that the energy still isn't finished. And I'm just trying to guess what it might be like. So it just sort of pulls you. I know uh, Swamiji wrote somewhere, which I had, must have read when he wrote it because he wrote it years ago, but I didn't notice it until relatively recently. He said, he, he was talking about how Taramata in SRF had such a, intense um, vendetta against him is the only thing I can think of. And after she died, um, a man came to visit Swamiji, whom we'd never met before, who said he, he was carrying a posthumous message from Tara. The Tara had come to him, I don't know whether it was in a dream or in a vision, and asked him to carry a message to Kriyananda. And the message was, in a previous incarnation, I was your younger brother and you did, in fact, um, split our master's work, and you know, and you were 
Um, you were a traitor to our master's work. Um, and I never forgave you for doing that. And in this incarnation, I saw you in that same light. And only now that I'm out of that body am I able to see that I was deluded, that that karma for you was long since over. But I was still carrying it. This is what Tara's message was, in essence. And so she acted out as if he, as if he were going to do, if, as if he were going to consciously and deliberately split SRF. That was her whole thought the whole time, is that they needed to throw him out when he was 36 in 1962, because if they waited any longer, he would have too much power and they wouldn't be able to stop him. This was all her thinking. It was very reasoned. But she says it was, wasn't this lifetime she realized. That was all fascinating in and of itself. But then Swami added this thought. If the, um, if the force driving him out of self-realization fellowship had been one ounce less determined, then he never would have left. Because I, he, Swami has never said this, but if he had that kind of a betraying of his guru in his past, his loyalty would be, uh, he would absolutely not ever do that again. But he just talked about how, you know, how loyal he is and he would never have separated himself if he hadn't been pushed out. So then he added, so I saved the karma from that incarnation, the one where he had actually done wrong, for a time when it would be useful. Now isn't that an interesting statement? Yeah. And there were a lot of things that happened in Swami's life. I wonder, you know, how much of it was he just saving it because it was necessary? It was just necessary to play it out in a certain way in this incarnation. It was, it's the most interesting explanation I've heard for the parts of Swami's life that I don't understand was that it was energy that had to, the circle had to finish because even though his ego had stepped out of it, see, that's the, that's the interesting part. Your ego can step out of it but it can still be running just because it has to finish. As I understand these things now, you have to understand I'm also guessing because it's not like I can see this, but this is how I, I sort of gathered from what I do understand. Uh, Anandi said that once about karma, which I thought was an interesting way to put it. You, you start energy and it, the whole circle has to be completed. You know, whatever you, whatever you reap, you have to sow. Whatever, it, just, it has to finish like that. So energy starts and it has to come all the way back around. And it usually comes back around to you and hits you because the ego is identified and still identified even if we don't remember those lifetimes when the things happened, we still identify with them. And so there's still a magnetic connection and when it hits us, it, it tends to, we tend to think it has to do with us personally. But for someone like Swami, who had, had transcended ego identification with the events that swirled through his incarnation, he just didn't identify personally. They happened, but they, he didn't identify personally with them. But nonetheless, it was energy that had to come around and go through him. And it served his purpose. I mean, there was, you know, all of the tumultuous things that happened in various ways. I know, though, when... Um, some of it was, was not, it was either not his karma, I mean, it was the karma of his disciples, which is something else, where, where the guru just literally gathers one of those waves that's coming at someone else and just stands in there and takes it, just takes it on himself, whether it's 
physically or it just it happens to him instead of happening to the disciple so, so a lot of the tumultuous things conceivably he was just gathering up from others or um, or it was just something that had to finish or it was completely impersonal when we were embroiled in the um, litigation that was designed to cause us all to lose faith in Swami and Ananda you know just designed to destroy our sense of uh, integrity and someone proposed that we ought to have some you know days of atonement and introspection to ask why this was happening to us Swami was very emphatic he said this is not personal this has nothing to do with us he said we have nothing to introspect about he said this is just persecution which is that's a great deal of difference so you can attract karma that is persecution karma where it's not really uh, your own at all and and it's the forces in the, in our case everything we've been involved in is uh, trying to establish self-realization in a very materialistic world and try to try to establish a spiritual work that isn't uh, uh, smothered by dogmatism that's the bigger battle that's going on we're just trying to as Swami said we lost when with Jesus and we're trying it again to see if we can pull it out yes um, the microphone's right there I was just thinking how um, you know Jesus said all these things shall be added unto you and persecutions right. well perse- persecutions are uh, the reward for doing something good right exactly <laughs> you know, <laughs> your bad karma is the reward for doing something bad that's exactly so right if we were going to introspect it's like okay well we were doing too good of a job somebody had to stand up and try and, exactly. try and stop us I think that's what I was quoting Peter Caddy last week if they're not persecuting you you're not working hard enough <laughs> but it is it's very interesting extremely Master was persecuted too by his own disciples and mostly by his own disciples but also by others just happens to everybody. So anyway, it, it, what this what this little section does, and this this whole conversation which we've had before always does to me is reminds me that I don't actually know what I'm talking about, and that it's really a good idea not to have really strong opinions about things that you don't really know what you're talking about. Um, I think the most important reality is to be humble and n- notice. When uh, notice when wisdom is present and try to learn from it, and and just trust. You don't have to be so worried that somebody is is going to make a mistake because they're not self-realized after all. Just it's it's uh, and what it means. It it's also just like how few avatars there really are, and just what a, what a rare and unusual thing it is to have this. Um, line of gurus, all of whom are self-realized masters. It's just not common. I mean, Ramana Maharshi, and and then you have the little trick of Ramana Maharshi's disciple becoming self-realized, but he he himself wasn't. But what does that really mean? Liberated. Liberated, Fully liberated. Self-realized. Thank you. Self-realized is one thing, but fully liberated is to have dissolved all the karma. Well, as we learned in the Patanjali series, once we get to samadhi, we're not done. (laughs) The story of Jesus and John the Baptist is the same, where Jesus became more advanced than his guru, who was John. Um, uh, It's just beyond me to understand it. But it does tell you 
that Ramana Maharshi is capable of fully liberate, of liberating his own disciples. So therefore, the, the power of God is fully present in him. If, uh, pardon me? Because he's real. Yes. But, but even his, in his own state, it's high enough in the distinctions. But I think they matter in the sense that I think when you're... That, that's what um, the unpublished, or, or the only just partially published diaries of Lahiri Mahashaya, which uh, came out in an English version of it that I found extremely difficult to read. Um, but what you saw there is that Lahiri kept a lifetime of diaries about very subtle spiritual states and spiritual experiments all about what you do in meditation when you're at that level of consciousness. Which when I looked at it was very interesting because that's not exactly a teaching for our times. But nonetheless, that was, that was what his contribution was. And those diaries exist and they're, the book that is published that I was reading, it's very confusing as to what is the author's Addition and what is really Lahiri's statements and what's the author's interpretation of what Lahiri said. But what you got from it was this realization that that's, that's what he did when he was meditating. He wasn't just having experiences, he was also documenting and, and, and instructing. He was, he was writing instructions. And I, I, I know I've mentioned this before, but in some letters that Master wrote to Rajasi, he also instructs Rajasi in various kinds of experiments Rajasi can do in his meditations. You know, different uh, states of consciousness he could explore, different attitudes he could explore. Um, so there's just a world out there that uh, we will be introduced to when the time is right, I presume. Yeah. I'm getting a... <clears throat> maybe you explained it, but I'm getting mixed up. You said... There's a difference between being liberated and self-realizing. Well, I keep, I I keep using the words in a completely manner. And I don't know manner. what that means. But Master is talking about fully liberated means that there's no karma left and you're an avatar. You return as an avatar. To be God-realized means that you yourself have attained that state of realization. This is what he's saying. You have a, you've attained the state of realization, but you have a little residual karma that you just... Jivan Mukta. Okay. And I think we'll just move right along. Okay. Number 88. In the above discussion, after the Master said, you can go on for incarnations, he added, or you can say, I am free right now. It's all in the mind. As soon as you say you are free, you are free. Boone, who was present, raised the objection. Sir, if I said I was free, I wouldn't be, would I? (laughs) Oh, yes, the master replied, but the thing is, you answered your own question. You said, I wouldn't be. The trouble is, you see, that the mind is already poisoned with the delusion it wants to overcome. It lacks force. There was a man, he continued, who wanted to rid himself of a demon. He decided to perform a certain Vedic ritual for that purpose. Taking up a handful of powder, he chanted the prescribed incantation over it, then cast the powder onto the demon. The demon only laughed. Before you could say your incantation, he said, I got into the powder myself. How then could it affect me? The thing is, the demon of delusion is already well uh, settled in the mind. That is why Guru's help is so necessary. He empowers the mind to banish its demons. 
therefore it says also in the Bible, as many as received him, to them gave he power to become the sons of God. We were having a discussion earlier this morning, some of you were present, about essentially in as much as much of society, by no means all of society, is moving into a world of meditation and a greater appreciation of more subtle states of awareness, sort of where, what's our mission still? We're also having a discussion about uh, the temptation to repackage what we do in a way that would make it more presentable. You know, I mean, not that it was serious. We were talking about this in principle, not as a proposal. Um, but that, it just depends on what your objective is. A great deal of what's happening in, which is really, it's still all very positive and it's going in the right direction. But a great A great deal of what's happening is that uh, people are, um, it, it's, a, it's a kind of materialistic approach to, to spirituality in the sense of they're trying to function better, they're trying to be more incisive, they're trying to be more in control, they're trying to have more power. Um, it's not necessarily evil, but it's more like they're trying to be able to do what they want to do better. Whereas um, when you enter into the realm that we're living in, you're, you're just entering into a whole, the, the whole premise of what we're doing is different. The whole premise is not how can I really be super effective in the material world. It's how can I find a, a, a level of reality in which the material world um, is just something I live through but not, not who or what I am. It's just very, very different. But it's moving in the right direction. Swamiji told us that the Vedas are, uh, have all these instructions for various worldly accomplishments, rituals that you can do to have success here or have children or get money and even get revenge on your enemies and things like that. And when that comes through in the book of, about Milarepa, Tibetan's greatest yogi, which is a very entertaining book uh, because it's quite a story. And he developed the power, to, he got revenge his family was deeply wronged by, uh, by some of their relatives and his mother commissioned him to take revenge on them. So he learned black magic and took big revenge on them. Um, but he realized it wasn't such a good idea. But he, he really went to the scriptures essentially and learned how to take revenge. Why, why do they have such things in the scriptures? And Swami's answer was, well, because it teaches people to turn in that direction to, to recognize that all, kind, all power is here. It's, it's, it all comes from this divine source and you start on a low level but you can gradually escalate because all of life is a spiritual experience. All energy is the same energy. So, but if you really want to, to sort of transcend this whole mind that keeps us preoccupied, because, I mean, why are we even preoccupied in the first place? That's, that's where the demon has gotten a hold of us. And we keep imagining that really the only thing wrong is that I'm just not doing this well enough. There's that uh, amusing human characteristic that um, if something isn't working, we just keep doing more of it. We just imagine that the only thing that's wrong is that I'm not good enough at this thing I'm trying to do. And it's a wholly different understanding to realize that I'll never be good enough at this to feel the satisfaction I really want. That's why 
it's a common fact that more wealthy people commit suicide than poor people because wealthy people have what everyone is seeking and the anguish of having it and realizing that it's not going to give you anything is often much worse than desiring it and being frustrated because then you can always imagine that fulfillment. But when you really come up against the fact that it's not going to fulfill you, um, that's when real despair can set in. And you know that's, that's what happens. So um, this idea that the guru empowers you to be able to sort of cast aside that delusion. It's, it's a hard thing even to... Um, you can't conceptualize it with the mind. It's the only way I can think about it. Except that whenever you have an experience of solutions coming to you by God's grace, you recognize it immediately. You just can tell the difference between what you strained to make happen and what God gave you. And that the mission that we have is, um, we, were, we were saying this morning, it's, it's not like we're trying to be popular. It's not like our, you know, the success of what we're doing is going to be gauged in any way by the number of people who's in the ro- who are in the room or by the publicity we can get or by the famous people who endorse us or by the, by the establishment individuals that will network with us. I mean, that none of that actually means anything at all. The only thing that matters for us, for success, is that we clearly understand what it is that um, Master wants us to do and that we just faithfully and loyally carry that out. And the rest of it will take care of itself. And part of that is, it's not that we uh, stop everyone in the grocery store and you know, talk to them about the power of the Guru to transform their lives. But from the point of view of what we're, we're really doing ourselves, is we're, we're, way, we're way over here and we're just pulling. And, and there, we're not causing it, that would be really ridiculous to say, but we're part of a, an energy that is moving society. Um, Swami often commented, commented that society is rerouted usually by small groups of people who are intensely dedicated to what they're doing who have a great deal of magnetism. Look how Christianity has changed the planet. Look how Buddhism changed the planet. Um, just, um, and Master will and is in many ways already. He's influencing in ways that we don't even see. But Swami said you have a vortex of energy that gets created and the river of society is flowing in a certain way and when that vortex gets strong enough it begins to pull the culture over. And in 50 years that I've been engaged with these things, you know, here's um, organic foods and here's vegetarianism and here's the whole foods movement and here's yoga postures and here's meditation. And there's just been, you know, this coterie of people, not just Ananda, who've been just spinning this vortex this whole time and finally it gets enough force that the river of society begins to run much closer through that. But that by no means defines the life of discipleship. It's, it's so much farther over than that. And the, the life of uh, the disciples of Jesus was the same thing. It was a, a mixed blessing, you might say, when it became the national religion. It saved them from being thrown to the lions anymore, which was a nice change. But uh, as soon as it becomes established it has a wholly different characteristic to it 
than it does when it's, um, even when it's persecuted. Richard Wormbrand, who came out of communist Romania, and he, he, they were so persecuted at the time that he was there that they had no churches and all of the official clergy were, almost all were spies for the government and um, they would just meet often, they couldn't, often couldn't even meet in a home. They'd often meet out in the woods and they, they often didn't have any clergy so they would all have to become expert in the Bible and in the liturgy or whatever they did. And he said their, their church services would last two or three hours at least, often outside, and they would just be so filled with the Holy Spirit. And he would often imagine how wonderful it must be in the West where people can just openly go to church. And he had this picture in his mind of what was going on in the Western churches. And when he was finally ransomed out of prison and out of Romania all those years ago, he was, it was almost more painful than being imprisoned when he came to this country. And with all this freedom to worship, people go one hour for once a week. And uh, the minister seldom talks about anything. So, so we, we can't think just because peop- a few people share our ideas that um, we ourselves can just take that as enough. Just isn't nearly enough. We, we're, not, we're not done till we're fully liberated. And in the meantime, discipleship and God-realization has to be our watchword at all times. Comments or questions on that? I don't feel anybody's in danger of not understanding it, but it's these are just ideas that we have to keep in our minds as years pass and times change, and just and also um, because we are small and it's just the way it is. This, that was the delusion of Judas, according to the way Swami wrote it, that Judas wanted Jesus to pay more attention to the people in power. Those are the people who can really help you. What are you doing with all these low-lifers? <laughs> you know, all these tax collectors and fishermen, and these are not people who can really do anything for you. You need to network with the important people. And Jesus just wouldn't do it. And it was very frustrating to Judas because seemingly he was from more from that group. And I, I, I'm, it's not the same thing at all, but... Uh, I've paid more attention to this uh, presidential election than usual because it's so intensely odd. And there also seems to be a lot um, at stake. But one of the things that I, I just have found so interesting is um, you, you've always had this um, people who, who, in, who felt they have had a lot of power primarily the media, the, all the media personalities. And they all have a certain set of rules that they play by. And very intellectual people, erudite people, political philosophers, they all talk to each other and um, they, they support each other and make each other important, you know, by the way they all relate to each other. And because the media has such an influence, they all just relate to each other and feel that they're... <coughs> the real kingmakers, you know, because they are, uh, they're the ones. Um, and then this man Trump comes in and 
he's just like, he's, he's pulling from a wholly different um, vibration of consciousness, so to speak. And he, he knows, he knows, he, he can feel, or he's been guided in some, by some, I'll call it a dark force, to just feel that there's a whole other vibration of power that could be pulled out. And he's pulling his power from there. And then you have all these people who are just so accustomed to being listened to. And they're, they're just still trying to make it work by the same rules. And he's just stepped over here and he's just doing something completely else. That um, and They keep thinking that all the same, uh, if they embarrass him, if they insult him, if they ignore him. But their game, it's not... Um, they have power with each other but they don't have real power they have power to each other but he's, he's just drawing power from somewhere else it's, a, it's very scary I, I don't just mean because of his politics or anything but it's very scary to just watch how these things work and how um, those who think they're important are only important for as long as they're important I mean his happens to be a a preying on uh, uh, darker thoughts for people, although part of his preying on is just the uh, sheer arrogance of that uh, clique that just imagined itself to be untouchable and made hubris. Just he's just he's just acting out their inevitable the karma of their own hubris at that point. But it's quite um, when you get leaders. Who, who know how to tap into that kind of discontent and manipulate it uh, you don't really know where we're going after that I don't have any respect for any of them really it's not like I think anybody else on the docket or on the out there is any better they're just uh, expressing it um, with more civilization but it's not, it's not any purer it, it, but it's very interesting to watch and very instructive to watch. I can sort of feel Swamiji's consciousness. I can hear him commenting about just about the power of kings and politicians and leaders. And uh, it'll be interesting to see. Master uh, said that there would be cataclysmic events in the world and that the world would really change politically, socially, economically. He implied even uh, geologically. So... I have to say to myself, if it's going to change, I guess something has to change. It's not going to change just by suddenly, okay, let's all be different. You know, there's going to be forces like we're watching. That's what, that's what interests me. So many times over the last, well, for many years, but the last 20 years or more, when there would be some weird political or economic thing happen, sometimes Swamiji would call us from another part of the world to sort of ask, you know, what's what's going on because he would he was always wondering if if this would be the beginning of a shift of energy that would really turn our culture in a way in the kind of in the kind of picture that master predicted you know is is this it as i've sort of been watching it wondering is this it when this um, man manages to just pull power from a place that nobody's pulled it before you know where clinton is getting hers from is the same old place you know money, money, money that's where she's getting hers from 
but this man is getting it from somewhere else. I mean, that's not, that's not very cogent, but it's very interesting. And, you know, part of you really can appreciate um, his frankness. Because it just, there's the, the, the little coterie, the arrogant coterie has all their own little rules which are just so annoying because they're so dishonest. You just watch them play out all this dishonest, ego-based stuff. This man just comes in and just slices right through all that, but not with, not with a sword of light. So it, it is quite disturbing. You don't know where it will go. Interesting times, huh? Yeah, anyway, so what related to, let me see what that related to. Oh, it's about demons investing the mind. (laughs) Yeah, I was trying to think, how did I get there? Word association, huh? Oh, it's about the demon of delusion is already present in your mind. Mm -hmm. But the politicians, that's what they play on. They play on the demons of delusion in all directions. Don't be afraid, though. Practice Kriya so deeply, number 89. That breath becomes mind, the Master said to us one day. He added, The breath is a gross dream of the mind. It can be rubbed away by superconsciousness. True Kriya Yoga practice takes place in the deep spine, in the Shishumna. Well, he answers his own question. He answers my questions right there. You know, the whole... Um, it's so, such an interesting thing to have to try to practically apply, to, pl- to apply in a practical way the, the, the fact of Kriya, meaning that the inner reality is the only reality. And the, the practice, what we're doing when we're practicing Kriya is we are, and, and any form of meditation that you learn from us is the beginning of Kriya, and Kriya itself is just a more sophisticated way to do it is just a way to um, to deeply remind yourself that that breath and where the breath takes you is the only enduring reality and all of this with who gets to be president of the United States and um, what life in this country will become or life in whatever countries you're from will become it all happens um, but in the end it just all vaporizes that's what we're talking about when we're talking about the Jivan Mukta and you have all these incarnations behind you and they're all there and everyone was so intense and so real but they, they just vaporize it's really so odd I, I, th- there's a stage on the spiritual path Swamiji said where you actually lose your mind because it's just too much to deal with. And the, um, the challenge of transcending the ego is just more than we want to deal with. And Swamiji said, just you, people have incarnations where they're... It's not that they're in a state of, like, uh, enlightened lunacy. They're just taking a holiday from the whole project. You get too close to it and you really see what you're up against and what you're going to have to do and you just decide, I think I'll just go over here and just live in my, a world of my own imagination for a while until I, get, until I find out that that doesn't work either. It's really, the only, that's the trouble with it is that it doesn't work either. 
If it did work, that would be nice, but it doesn't work because it all just has to be faced. And the, and the, but the point from which you face it is this very deep practice of Kriya. And that means also just this deep, constant inner affirmation that my life with God and Guru is, is my real life and everything else that happens is just something that my karma is going to take me through. That's what I was talking about on, on uh, Sunday, as I recall. It just goes up and down and up and down and I just stand here and watch it. Swamiji told us that when he was in the... Uh, I, I always come back to the litigation because it's always on my mind a lot. When he was in the courtroom being vilified by utterly dishonest, lying people, he said, <laughs> he just... Uh, went into the astral world. That's what he said. <laughs> he just put his attention on the astral world because it was just too unpleasant here. He just didn't want to have to... He, he, didn't, he just didn't want to have to live in... It was really ugly. And it was a very ugly vibration. In the courtroom I said to Swami once, I said, I, I'm not given to visions, but I could almost see the demons running around and screaming in that room. It's, I mean, it was just like they were, they were just, just shadows. They were just the devils. They were just running around and screaming, trying to just destroy us. And he just said, yes, I think he could see them. So he said he just went into the astral world. But it's such an interesting thought, isn't it? There you are sitting there, and instead of just enduring something so unpleasant, you just go into the astral world. And you're still there. I mean, that's... that's I read stories about that. There was a man, his first name was Star. His last name was something else from the 20s and 30s. And he was a prisoner in Alcatraz. And uh, he eventually got out. I think he was a student. He was a student of Master's Lessons or a student of Master. Uh, I wish I knew his last name. Uh, Trisha can look it up for us on the internet. Um, but Star Somebody was his first name. And he was on an Alcatraz and he got put into um, some horrible sol- uh, solitary confinement in, in some very brutal fashion, almost unbearable. And he accidentally discovered astral travel. <laughs> and he, he, he developed the ability to just simply leave the prison. <laughs> and his body was still there, but he was able to leave. And then he, it's very fascinating when you read it, he gradually discovered many, many aspects of the path. Ultimately, I believe he was released. But he, you could tell he'd studied Master's lessons. I think he even refers to getting some lessons or something like that. But he just, the, the intensity of the moment forced him to find another reality than the one his body was in. And that's why tough things happen, is because when you can't, when you're not, when you can't be comfortable in the ordinary consciousness that you have, and, and you're, you're past the point where you'll just take drugs or commit suicide or go crazy, because having tried all of those, you know those don't work either. Those are just the stages. But ordinary consciousness is unbearable. Then you begin to really push. And so w- once you get that figured out, Master is encouraging us to get ahead of the curve. <laughs> you know, practice your Kriya so deeply that your breath just dissolves in the mind, that you see it all, that you see even your physical body. It's just uh, an illusion that you're... Uh, you're living in very this are wonderful promises aren't they yeah i love that
Let's see, this, I think this might be quite long. Let's take a little break before we go to number 90 then. Okay. Okay, number 90. And I said it's real nice. It's long, but it's nice. The master, yeah, a little bit. We're not, not, not sort of way out there. The master was truly an embodiment of compassion. No matter how much anyone wronged him, he remained ever his spiritual friend. And no matter how far a disciple strayed from the path, he sought always to bring that person back to God. In the West, the word disciple suggests discipline, but in India the word often used is chela, suggesting a beloved son or daughter. There was one disciple to whom the master gave a very serious warning. If you leave this life here, if you leave this life here, it will take you 200 more incarnations to return to it. The disciple to his own great misfortune did leave. Later he returned for a visit. The master said of him afterward, he sobbed before me, why did I ever leave? The moods I had here were as nothing compared to what I've experienced since I left. On another occasion, the master said, some people who leave here criticize us, reporting that we do not live the spiritual life. That's because they themselves didn't live it. They spread evil gossip about us. Well, so long as they hold that attitude, I can't help them. But if they leave and afterward come running to me for help, I do everything I can for them. It isn't that I condone their decision. I am, however, as the saying goes, in this for the long haul. Norman, after leaving, came to me crying. Why did I ever leave this place? I said to him, wasn't it a paradise? You bet it was, he replied, and wept so long that I wept with him. If only he had listened before getting burned. Of Swami Dirananda, a disciple who had left years before, I, Walter, came to Mount, years before I, Walter, came to Mount Washington and had then turned against his guru, the master wrote in a letter about him, it will take him another three lifetimes now to be liberated. Carol Neely, an editor student of his, was present during a discussion in the living room at the Master's Desert Retreat. She asked about Sadhu Haridas, about whom the Master had spoken, this well-known 18th century saint, though he had spiritual powers, had fallen from the path and had gone to live with a woman. He'd returned to his disciples later. The master had just finished telling us that Haridas attained final freedom at the end of his life. Mrs. Neely asked him, isn't the punishment for a spiritual fall much greater if one is highly advanced? The master shook his head. Oh, mm. God is no tyrant. Once one recognizes his mistakes and realizes deeply that God was all he ever really wanted, he will be taken back. One who has been accustomed to drinking nectar and then eats stale cheese soon grows dissatisfied with it and throws the cheese away, crying for nectar again. If he longs with all sincerity for God's love alone, the Lord won't reject him. Sadhu Haridas at the end of his life said, 
I have committed many wrongs, but now my beloved is calling me. I am going home. Swami writes, What a blessing, I thought, that however far a soul strays from God, the Lord will always love him and will never turn his back on him if he cries for him sincerely, no matter what he has done. As the Master said, Pray to God in this way. Divine Mother, naughty or good, I am thy child. Thou must accept me. Some disciples, like Dirananda, actually turned against the Master. Of such fallen ones, the Master said, If my child falls from a rooftop, I rush to pick him up and will do everything I can to help him. But if, as I draw near, he starts shooting at me, what can I do? I must put my hand in my pocket and leave him to his own devices. I respect his free will. If he would allow me to help him, however, I would at once forget that he ever disobeyed me or turned against me. The Master was a spiritual doctor. His one aim was to heal suffering. Once, after he'd scolded a disciple, the young man asked, But you will forgive me, won't you? The Master's reply, accompanied by an astonished look, was, What else can I do? Well, that's quite a story, isn't it? You know, this is, um, I think you should mark number 90 (laughs) and remember it. I mean, it's, we may not um, push the issue as far as some of those disciples push the issue, but the, the inclination to disbelieve in God and Guru's love for us um, is the greatest enemy that we have on the spiritual path. Because when we imagine somehow that um, he's as displeased with us as we feel about ourselves, uh, then there's, there's nothing, it, that's, that's what cuts off um, God's ability to help us. Swami talked about Daniel Boone, who was the one who, Master said, if you leave, you'll, it'll take you 200 lifetimes. Yeah. And Swami said that once he, Daniel started down that path, Swami, um, he, he started feeling himself that he was lost. And there was nothing Swami could do to persuade him that if he just came back, it, it would be fine. He, it, it got into his own mind that he had disobeyed the Master and disregarded the Master. In that respect, and the story Swami tells about um, Tara Mata was also very inspiring because Tara Mata um, left Mount Washington to get married. And she went and had a daughter, in fact. And then the marriage proved to be not really at all what she should have done. And so she just picked up her daughter and came back and moved back into Mount Washington or came back to Master. And another disciple who didn't understand any of this said to Tara, how dare you come back after you disobeyed the master? I mean, think about the way the mind, that mind works. You did the wrong thing and it's like, how dare you just show your face around here again? And Taramata would have none of it. She just looked at the, I think it was a nun, of course it was a nun, and said, what do you want me to do, worship my mistakes? I mean, it's just such a simple way to put it. It shows Tara's greatness in many ways, which is, yeah, I've made a mistake. So do I then define myself for the rest of my life? And worse than that, 
Do I imagine that Master's power doesn't extend out far enough to help me? Um, I, I remember Davy made a comment once, um, way in the early years when we were very first starting longer yoga courses and so on. There were some month-long courses. They might even be called have been called teacher training. I don't know what they were called, but Davy and Jyotish taught some of these back in the 70s. And the main point was it was a month-long course of whatever it was. And she, um, I remember her remarking, she said, at the beginning she thought I was actually there to teach them this information. She said, but what I actually began to understand is that I was looking at a room full of angels who didn't believe in themselves. And she said they didn't understand who they were and how much God loved them. And she said, and that's all I was really, that was my only job, she said, was to help them to wake up um, to their own actual relationship with God and Guru, which, which is completely different than we think of it. And that the Master's just a simple statement, I'm in it for the long haul. If we can just, with ourselves and everybody we know, if we can just reverse that thought that somehow when people make an error, that that in any way um, inhibits your relationship with God or has anything to do with anything. It just means that these things happen. Um, it, it's, and the masters just don't see us that way. He said, once, if you come back to me and really want my help, he said, it doesn't matter what you've done, I'll just forget. I love the way he puts that. He says, you know, if he talks against me, but then he says, um, you know, if you start shooting at me, I've put my hands in my pocket. And then he says, because I respect his free will. That's also a critical point here. Because it's not as if God or Guru will come and force you to turn back. If, if you're determined, if we are determined to keep on in wrong attitudes, it doesn't um, sever our relationship, but it does inhibit a master's ability to help us because there has to be receptivity and and that's where Swami was saying about uh, Daniel Boone his, deter- his determined belief that he was beyond salvation made him for the time beyond master's help because he, he, he couldn't and wouldn't even turn toward it he was, well he was very ashamed and he was also in a state of despair Shame is one of those eight fetters, isn't it? It's very, it's, it's very difficult. It's not, it's not like it's easy. That's why you have to um, really contemplate it a lot when it's not an issue. So that when it becomes an issue, you'll have some um, uh, stability somewhere deep inside of you so that when the moment comes where you really do have uh, disappointed yourself um, on such a large scale that you think it may actually be the end at least for this life or for today or for this month it's, it's marvelous to just sit and meditate what does it feel like to be loved unconditionally by one who sees us clearly it's quite something else to be loved by someone who doesn't have the discrimination to know, like your 
Well, there, there's a P.G. Woodhouse story, and the, and the story is called The Shy Man. And it's, it's a story written from the point of view of this man's dog. And the, the dog was very concerned because his, um, his, his, his person, um, people would come to the door and he would hide and he wouldn't answer the door. And the dog just thought that he needed to help this man you know, overcome his shyness. And it turns out that his, uh, his person was a thief and the people coming were the police trying to direct <laughs> And the dog was trying so hard to help his, his person become less shy. <laughs> no, where, where did that relate? Oh, yes. You know, I was starting to say, someone with the discrimination to know who we are. And it's, it's, very, it's very interesting meditation, seriously. To just really... It's not like we want to conjure up our worst qualities, but we all have bad qualities. And sometimes circumstances cause us a great deal of pain and, and there's a great deal of um, discomfort in the realization of what our shortcomings are. It happens to all of us. And it's, it's very powerful to, if you haven't actually experienced it, even just to try to imagine. Just try to imagine Master or one of the gurus, Swamiji, actually just looking right at you and fully acknowledging who you are and what you've done and then just imagine what it would be like to, to just be completely loved regardless with full awareness of it, you see, that's, what I, that's the point uh, a friend who suffered a very serious betrayal from someone she trusted uh, came to Swami and was trying to overcome the hurt and she said... Uh, you know, everything that happened was just what, just right. It was just what, what should have happened. And that's, that's so, I mean, I'm not, I'm not mad anymore because... So when he said, don't comfort yourself with a fantasy. He said, wrong actions were done. You were betrayed. People did not behave properly. He said, you have to be able to look at it for exactly what it is and then raise your consciousness above it. That's quite different. And so that's, that's what we have to feel is that um, and think of the story of Jesus. That's the uh, Jesus and Peter, where at the Last Supper, Jesus was saying, "I'm going, I'm going uh, to a place where you cannot go with me." And Peter was quite offended at the thought that Jesus thought he wouldn't go with him. And Peter declared that I'll go wherever you go, Lord. I'm going to go with you. There's no place you can't go that I won't go with you. And then Jesus then looked at Peter and that was when he said, oh really? He said, well, before the dawn comes, you'll deny three times that you even know me. I mean, that was quite a statement in the light of it. I mean, think of it. And then Jesus was arrested and everything became so frightening that that's exactly what happened to Peter three times. People said to him, aren't you one of his followers? And the implication was that Peter could then have been arrested and taken just as Jesus had been taken. And three times Peter said, no, no, not me. I don't know him. Just, just think how panicked his mind was at that point. Think these things happen. And then the, the sound of the rooster signaled the morning and Peter came out of it and realized what had happened. But imagine Jesus is there right with him before any of this is even actually manifested, although he knows it's coming. And uh, just looks right at him. 
and says, no, of course not. This is who you really are and you're going to find out who you really are. And then, of course, Jesus returns after his crucifixion and then there's the balancing when he walks with Peter and three times says to Peter, do you love me? And Peter says, yes, Lord, I love you. And almost exasperatedly, why do you keep asking me? Yes, I love you. But then the karma comes to balance. And this is just an amazing story to meditate on, putting yourself there with whatever it is that we know our own weaknesses to be, our own exasperating qualities that um, the people who love us have to put up with. And you know, the, way the, the way the masters love us is not, as Swami said, with sort of heroic willpower. You know, sometimes we can love each other with heroic willpower. You drive me crazy, but I manage to hold my exasperation in. And that, although Swami had his moments, I remember Swamiji was, went to Hawaii. Some group or somebody, somebody he, he went with a group, but it wasn't a group of people with whom he could relax. They, they just, they were not easy to be with. And one woman in particular was particularly difficult. And he, he, when he came back to the mainland, Seva and I picked him up at the airport. And uh, as soon as Swami got in the car, he started just excoriating us for just all kinds of things. And it was so funny because... Um, the more he scolded us, the more Seba and I were just kind of giggling. And it just felt, it was such an odd experience. And we were, you know, we had to more or less take him seriously, but it was, there was no uh, anguish like there might have been. And then finally, after about five minutes of that, he said, oh, he said, I've just been holding it in for the last two weeks. <laughs> Just, you know, and he said a little bit about the people he was with and how very difficult they were. And he'd had to just love them with willpower and he just needed to let off a little steam and now he was fine and we could just go on. But it was, you know, it was a very natural response. But deeply, on a much deeper level. There's no willpower involved. It's just I'm in it for the long haul. But remember how Master described one of his disciples as like a like hot molasses, I'm too hot to swallow and too sticky to spit out. <laughs> but Master had a sense of humor about it, which is also it's very sweet when you really hear that. But also he talked about how um, Norman came back and sobbed and sobbed until Master was sobbing with him. Imagine how that feels, because because Master at that point he, it's sort of like who knows what it is. The karma's already started. The disciple himself doesn't have the capacity anymore. He's lost his attunement. He's on a, a, a karmic loop he has to follow. Right, whatever it might be. It's just very... Um, but meditate on it. Meditate on what you would do. Would you have the nerve to come back? There's a few people at, uh, who, who at Nanda Brinde the woman who just died a couple of months ago. Um, she never repudiated, she never turned against us or in any way. But she went on a very long circle. She wasn't able to, she had too many difficult karmas to hold herself within Ananda. But she never gave up on God and Guru, but she went out through long, 
very long 25-year cycle of, uh, you know, multiple marriages and various other... I think she worked in, in the casinos in Las Vegas for about 25 years. I mean, it's not a... She's a pure-hearted soul, but it's just that was where her karma took her. And that was sort of... She had dark, a dark vibration she had to work through. And when she was all finished, she just came back to Ananda and died like a saint. Because she just didn't allow any of that to hold her down. And she had to just, you know, go through the whole children she birthed and didn't raise and everything else that she'd done. She gave birth to three children and didn't raise any of them. Just was in no mental or emotional condition to raise them. But by the end, she just was able to look at it all and very, very deeply to know that it didn't matter at all to Master. It, it had mattered to her intensely while it happened, but the Guru was just the same with her. And the story of Sadhu Haridas is just so... Haridas, I mean, it's a, it's a well-known story of a, a true saint. He was in the 1800s and he was a miracle worker and he could walk on water and he was, you know, the leader of an ashram and had many disciples. And then he became infatuated with a woman. And he went off and lived with her for a while. I mean, not in a way that was appropriate. I mean, Swami stopped being a Swami and got married in the middle of his life. But it was entirely different. It was a, a, a necessary step for the development of Ananda. And it was just, here I am, this is what I'm doing. But he just left what he was doing and went off to be with this woman. And then, I think it was a few years, then he just came back. <laughs> he just came back to his disciples, even, and said, well, I made a mistake and now I'm done and here I am. And they just understood and took him back. And he just went on from there and became fully liberated. I mean, you have to really stop and ask that. We, we have such a weird idea of what that's supposed to look like. We don't even know what the last life looks like. I always work backwards from, wow, you know, when great, these things happen to great spiritual souls, it's really quite different than we think it is. And the Master really... It, did you want the microphone? It's right here. It's... Uh, anyway, it's very interesting. Yes. Um, it's also, if you have the good fortune to uh, observe somebody like Brinde or Haridas or someone like that... Uh, who actually uh, you Sadhu can see Sadhu Haridas, Sadhu not Haridas, our own Haridas. Right? Uh-huh. And he, uh-huh. and you can see that uh, through all this, he's actually came back and he made it back. To me, it would be extremely comforting if I had any kind of sentience at all, even though I'm groveling around in despair. If I could just see this happen, it would be a terrific example. Well, it's the demon is in the powder. So when you're not captured by those things, it sounds easier to repudiate them than it is when you're captured by them. That's why you have to really imagine it before it happens. I'm thinking you're in a situation where you're capable at least of uh, weeping at Master's feet, so you are not uh, completely captured by the powder, and yet you still don't have the strength to get out of it. So in a situation like this, if you had the ability to at least acknowledge your grief, you might be inspired by the behavior of others who have actually are demonstrating they could come back. Yeah. 
I mean, you don't, why, why then did, when Master talks about these two who came back weeping, why didn't they stay? I mean, that's, you know, that, that's, you know, it's very sobering. I mean, they might have known themselves that they simply, their desires for whatever took them away in the first place were too strong. They didn't have the willpower. Yeah. It's, there was another one in here that I want to say. You know, this, this sounds all sad, but it isn't. It's really very sweet. What did he say? Um, just something. I'm sorry I lost the thought. There was something I wanted to bring out, but I can't remember what it is. Just also, it's like, what a model for loving each other he gives us. You know, like, how, um, how far this is from the sort of self-righteous, you know, you have done the wrong thing and I'm going to show, you know, I'm not going to deal with you anymore because you've fallen from the heights that I expected you to live up to. And we think somehow that that's the right way to respond to each other. It's, um, it's very sobering. And, you know, you do it with willpower, but imagine if you just did it out of sheer compassion. I mean, you forgive people who've wronged you or um, accept people who are insensitive and unkind. And, and you can do it with willpower. You can just master your responses. But wow, wouldn't it be even more wonderful just not to have those responses, but only just think with compassion, even if you're the one? I mean, you hear stories of, oh, we had, you know, the sadhu goes out and comes back to his ashram all bloody. And what happened to you? Oh, we had such fun. The boys were throwing stones and sticks. And he doesn't even realize that they were throwing the stones and sticks at him. He just saw that the boys were having a really good time. And, oh, yes, it was I who, that, who was being injured. But when people injure us, which they do, you know, we can, we can master it with willpower, but wouldn't it be even more wonderful never to even have to use the willpower because all you see is um, a child of God working his way or her way towards salvation? Yeah, that's real self-realization. That's, not, that's what we were talking about earlier. That's where the guru comes in and gives you the power to become something you didn't know you could become. That's not just getting yourself in order and behaving properly. It's just a whole order of magnitude. So, that's where we're going, guys. Isn't that the good news? That spirit of Master, that forgiving and loving spirit of Master is what Swamiji has permeated Ananda with. And it's our greatest strength. Nothing else is really as important in our community at all, really, except the way that we love each other. And uh, um, without compromising our own ideals, we love each other on that basis and hold that love for each other. That's because that's what, that's what liberates us. You know, that, that demand on us is one of the reasons our community is as great as it is and is such a benefit for self-realization. Aren't we lucky? It's a paradise, isn't it? Okay, so we went from 87 through 90 today. 
And next week is the first week of May. Because one of these Tuesdays we're having that satsang with Kirtani, but that's probably the 16th or 17th. So that's that two more weeks or three more weeks away. Yeah. Yeah, Kirtani, she's coming for a few days and going up to the village and she's coming on a Tuesday. And at, at Chayla Bhavan we'll have a satsang. We should announce that now. It's definite. Yeah, let me... I'm looking around. I'll send a note to somebody. Yeah. Okay. Okay. Thank you.